Our text this morning is from John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the words of the true and living God. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you, Lord thanking you for this time that we have together as your people to worship. Lord, we thank you that we can come before you and sing your praises. We thank you that we can come before you and hear your word preached. We thank you that we can come before you and pray, knowing, Lord, that you hear our prayers. We thank you for the great mercy and grace that you have poured out upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would give us a greater understanding of your word, that you would give us a greater love for your word, Lord, that you would help us, God, move us, Lord, to greater faithfulness and greater obedience. God, Christ, your Son has set us free from sin. And so help us to live in that freedom, Lord, that we are not in bondage any longer, Father, but free to obey you with our hearts. Oh, Lord, speak through me this morning. Get me out of the way and help me to proclaim your words faithfully and help your people to hear your word and to believe it, God. All glory is yours. Father, make your presence known to us today. 
and magnify your words in our hearts. Amen. So, over the past five weeks, uh, we've been studying the gospel. And we've been primarily focused on the perspective of the Apostle John. Uh, For most of that time, we've been looking at the role of God in the work of salvation. And it's important for us to lay this foundation because Scripture makes it clear. God is the center of this work. It is God alone who gets the glory for saving His people. It is God alone who has planned and purposed and accomplished everything according to His good pleasure and will. Man is the gracious recipient of this wonderful purpose and plan to to the praise and glory of Almighty God. And what I want to try and make clear this morning, though, is that man is not simply a passive bystander in this great plan. Yes, it is God who moves and decrees and who ultimately causes all of his plans to come to pass. But he does not leave man without responsibility. Just as God draws his own to Christ, just as he makes them born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, he commands all men everywhere to come. And those who do come, he commands to love one another and to love God by obeying his commands. And unfortunately, in many corners of evangelicalism, obedience has become something of a dirty word. Many confess the great doctrine of salvation by faith alone, all the while forgetting that, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but a faith that is alone, that is, a faith without works, is dead. The Bible teaches, indeed Christ's own words, as we will see this morning, teach that we are commanded to obey God in His Word, to love Him, and to do good works, and by so doing, prove that we are truly disciples of Jesus. So I want to give a little bit of background to uh, where we're at this morning in John 15, um, just like I've been trying to do. Uh, I don't know when the last time any of you read John 13 and 14 was, but uh, just reading reading through it this week to prepare for the sermon and, and to be able to give you the background I'm about to, there's glory there. There's glory, right? These These are the moments... When Christ is, is, he knows and has even said what's, what's ahead of him, right? He knows that what's coming is the greatest test of obedience that he is ever going to face. 
right? He knows that the cross is coming and that death is coming. But he also knows that resurrection and life is coming. And so in these moments, he realizes that his disciples don't have a full grasp of everything that he's been teaching. And they don't especially have a full grasp of the fact that he is going to die. And so in these moments, they've celebrated the Passover together. They've, they've, they've taken that meal. And Jesus is trying to comfort them because he's saying some things that they just don't get. He's saying things like, I'm going to die. I'm going to be with my father. Where I go, you, you, you cannot come. But you know the way there. He's saying things that are just confusing. And so the disciples are downcast a bit. And what Christ teaches in these, in these moments leading up to his death is meant to give them comfort and is meant to give them joy and is meant to help them to continue to understand what he's been trying to teach them. And so Jesus has just observed Passover with his disciples. And after they ate, what he did was he got up from the table and he washed all of their feet and gave them a, a lesson about what it is to be a servant. He's begun a, a, a time of private ministry to prepare them for what is to come shortly. And he's given them a, quote, new command to love one another just as he has loved them. And he's also promised to send the Holy Spirit to help and guide them after he is gone. Jesus has told his disciples all of these things in order to comfort them because they are still not able to understand everything that he said. Right? So what follows as we get into our text this morning is a continuation of this. Right? It's, it's comfort and teaching. But the reason I want to focus on chapter 15 is because our own mandate to obey God is taught very, very clearly here. So, let's get into it. Verse 1, I am the true vine. And of course, this is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Jesus here relates the intimate relationship of Father and Son in the plan of God. Jesus is the vine. Through him, salvation is accomplished. And in him, every believer is firmly rooted. So, in writing about Jesus as the vine, the Puritan Benjamin Keach relates, he relates this, he says, in that cluster, right, in, in, in Christ as the vine, in that cluster, there is much choice fruit as atonement reconciliation, redemption, victory over sin and Satan, the abolishing of the law, and the establishing everlasting righteousness. He was fruitful in his resurrection, ascension, intercession, etc. The graces of the Spirit, 
Holy ordinances and promises of eternal life are all fruits of this heavenly vine. And so because Jesus bears these fruits, believers also bear these fruits. For example, we are in him, and while we did not bring our own atonement, we have atonement in Christ. So because he accomplished atonement, and we are said to be in him, we also have atonement. <clears throat> the Father here is intimately connected to the vine, like a farmer would be, as the vine dresser. And this is the person who inspects the plant to make sure that it's producing fruit. And so this is going to come into play a little more in the next verse, um, because to believe in Christ is to be in Him as the vine. We are literally a part of Him. And so we're going to see how God, the Father, as vine dresser, how this functions here. Verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So in the fruit farming world, plants that produce fruit must be cared for. Branches that produce fruit must be pruned in order to continue producing. And branches that do not produce cannot remain as a part of the plant because they are useless. The Father acts as the one who either prunes the branches or cuts them off entirely. And this serves as a warning for those who claim to be in Christ. Those who are in Christ, hear me, must bear fruit. They must bear fruit. Just as there are branches and vines and fruit plants that do not bear fruit, there are people who claim to be in Christ, and yet they produce no fruit. They're dead branches. And they're not nourished by the vine. They're those who show themselves not to actually be in the vine that is Christ. But the Lord helps the branches, the true branches, to produce even more fruit. <clears throat> Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So I want, to, I want to point out a connection between two words here. The word prune in verse 2 and the word clean in verse 3 are actually related. They're almost the same word. And what they're communicating is the same concept of being worked on and cared for by God in order to be fruitful. And so what Jesus is saying here, right, by saying you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, he's saying that the words of God produce life. And they produce greater nourishment for those who are in Christ. 
Right? And so Jesus has, has done all this teaching and he's, he's focused in with his disciples now. And what he is saying to them, he's saying, I'm, I'm giving you words that will last for you. I'm giving you words that will carry you through to what's coming. I'm giving you words that will help you to bear fruit when you are no longer in my presence. The word of God is what empowers the believer to bear spiritual fruit. And we're going to get into what this fruit, I I know that what I'm saying over and over again is bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. We're going to get into what, what, what does that mean? What is bearing fruit? What is fruit of the spirit? But I I just really need to make it clear that this here, the word of God is what gives us the nutrients we need to actually produce the fruit, right? And so when we hear the word preached, when we hear the word taught, when we read the word and the Spirit gives us understanding, when we pray over the word that God would help us to understand it, right? It empowers us to live and be as Christians ought to. Jesus says his disciples are already clean because of the word which has been spoken to them. They've already been pruned some. Because that's what the Word of God does. You remember when Danny used to say, we hold the Word of God up as a, as a mirror, and it shows us who God is versus who we are. And so we look at the Word, and it challenges us. We see where we don't exactly measure up to all the things that God expects of us. But, praise be to God, He's given us the Holy Spirit that strengthens us to accomplish those things, to move past and be in repentance of our sins. Verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. It is imperative. It is imperative for believers to abide in Christ. These are commands from Jesus. Abide in me. It's true that those who are in Christ cannot fall away, but it is equally true that those who are in Christ must abide in him. There is responsibility on the believer to abide in Christ. A branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine. The vine is the one that supports the branch, and the branch does not support the vine. This is the image that Jesus is painting here. A believer, a believer cannot, cannot produce fruit apart from Christ. Christ is the source of faithful fruit. What this means, and, and I've, I've alluded to this some in the past, but what this means is that we, ha- we, have, we have folks, right? Even folks who are in, in the church, right, as a whole, 
<clears throat> and they would confess themselves believers. They, they would say, I'm, 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 I'm a saved person. But there's no real connection. And these people show themselves to be good, right? They're, they're, they're good folks. They do good things. But if they are apart from Christ, their fruit is not good fruit. A person cannot bear good spiritual fruit, fruit that is pleasing to God, apart from Christ. And if I can, if I can make this any clearer, right? All of our good works as a society, all of our, all of our charity, all of our uh, helping one another and all this kind of stuff, it, it, it has no true effect of value in the kingdom of God if it is done apart from Christ. And this is why it's dangerous to be a quote-unquote American Christian. Because so many Americans really are just good people. But apart from Christ, your fruit is worthless fruit. <clears throat> so here, right here, is where I want to bring in some more of John's writings. If you would turn with me to 1 John, right, chapter 3. And the reason I'm going to jump into this chapter here is because John has written down, he's given an account of the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus taught, right? And here in 1 John, what we're going to see is that John takes this little bit of stuff that Jesus said that he recorded in his gospel and he blows it up. He explains it more thoroughly. And so you'll see words in the passage that we're about to read, like abide, like fruit, right? That call us back to John 15 in the gospel. But what John's doing here is he's explaining what is this fruit? And what does it mean to be a Christian who bears fruit? And so you have to forgive me because we, we, we are going to read a lot here this morning. But... Uh, I'm going I'm to try my best to just stop and explain as, as, as necessary. So 1 John chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. It says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that He, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sin. 
No one, listen here, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. And I I need to make this perfectly clear this morning. Because there are those who will take these verses here and teach you. See, this means that a Christian should be perfectly sinless. And that's not, that's not what John is teaching here. Okay? The best way I know to explain this is when John says, No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. When he says that, what he is communicating is the same thing that I've said over and over again the past couple of weeks. Do you love the things that God loves? And do you hate the things that God hates? Because if you do, If you do, if God has by his Holy Spirit regenerated you and made you born again and he's changed your heart, then what that means is as a style of life, you are working towards obedience. You are in steady repentance of your sins. And as I've heard somebody like Paul Washer say numerous times, sometimes for the Christian, what's the, what, what the Christian life looks like is you take three steps forward and then you take two steps backwards. And you continue on in this kind of a pattern where, where you have victory for a time and you have uh, victory over your sins and your temptations and these things. But then every now and again, you fall back because we are weak, because we are still in the flesh. Right? Because we still have that within us as believers. But what marks the life of the Christian is that he knows his sin and that he hates his sin. The one who sins as a style of life, as a person who is unconcerned with the things of God, a person who is unbothered by the things that God hates, this is the person who does not know him. This is the person who continues on in sin. Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness, the one who practices righteousness, the one who participates in righteousness as a style of life is righteous, just as he, that is Christ, is righteous. The one who practices sin, the one who practices as a style of life, sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. And the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. Of God. Now, again, if we misunderstand these verses, if we misunderstand this, we're going to walk away thinking, this means I have to be perfect. And let me just tell you, that's going to hurt. That's going to hurt. If you walk away from this passage and you think to yourself, well, John and Jesus both said, I got to be, I got to be sinless, I got to be perfect. 
And then you wake up tomorrow and you forget to pray. Well, you're making a shipwreck of your faith. Because you're misinterpreting what John is communicating. A style of life. A style of life that shows you're concerned with the things of God. A style of life that shows you hate the things that God hates and you love the things that God loves. <clears throat> By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And we're going to get into that some more later. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There's that practice of life. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. I want to pause here for just a second because, again, I'm, I'm going to get to some of this. I'm going to, get, I'm going to get to explaining what some of this fruit is and what some of these deeds are. But I just, it's, it's such a blatant statement here. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. If we say that we love one another, and yet this is never borne out by our actions toward one another? John is telling us right here that that's, that's not real love. When you say, brother, I love you, but then when your brother's in a, a hard spot or a bad situation or he's in sin and you refuse to address the problems, how can you actually say that you love that brother? And this is an easy concept for us to think about when it's, when it's like physical needs, right? When someone's, when someone's hungry or someone uh, has a bill that they can't pay or something like that. Like it's, re it's really easy for us to think, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll just I'll go and I'll take care of this. But something that I just mentioned, this whole idea of addressing your brother's sin. If we know that our brothers and sisters are in sin and we don't confront them with it, with the truth, in, in, in gentleness, yes, in love, yes, but if we don't confront them, how can we say that we love them? Look at what it says one more time. Look at what it says. It says, and let us not, where's that? Um, yep. Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
Loving means being willing to speak the truth to one another, even if that hurts. Okay? We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. And so here's... Let me give just a little bit of personal insight. I've struggled with this passage before because of how, how plain it seems to say the one who sins is not in Christ. And again, I recognize my sin. I see my weakness as a man. I see my weaknesses as a Christian. And I think to myself, well, John said if I sin, I'm not of God. I'm not in Christ. But it says we will know by this, by our love for the truth, by our love for our brothers. And that will assure our hearts before Him. And so when we falter as Christians, when we struggle with our sins, we can have a great assurance because what we know, right, on the converse side of some of the things that we've been saying, what we can know is that the one who doesn't belong to God is not concerned with sin at all. The fact, believer, that you're concerned with your sin, that you're concerned with your temptations, that you're concerned to love the brethren, is proof and assurance that you do belong to God. It is proof that your heart has really been changed. We can't isolate little verses outside of the greater context of all of Scripture. Because when we do that, we end up in error that teaches sinless perfectionism. But when we consider what the whole of Scripture teaches, what we see is that when we are born again, God changes our hearts. And so we desire to do the things that please Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And so we're going to turn back to John 15 now and continue on in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words, Abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. When Jesus says here, ask whatever you wish, he's not implying that you're asking according to your own imagination. Okay? But according to God's will. Because this will be what the true believer desires, to do God's will. 
God will grant these requests because they are in line with His desires. Verse 8, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be My disciples. To bear fruit is to obey God. To bear fruit is to obey God. God is glorified when His people obey His commands. By obeying God and bearing fruit, we prove ourselves to be Christ's disciples. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss this. To bear fruit as a Christian is to obey the commands of God. Obedience produces fruit. Obedience produces fruit. And God has called us to bear fruit. He's called us to abide in Christ, which will allow us and make us bear fruit. Verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, there it is, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I want to reiterate here that Jesus gives a positive command to love. So God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is working in us so that, so that we will be able to produce fruit. But it remains that we also have a responsibility to produce fruit. You see, there's two, there's two things going on there at the same time. God is sovereign, and He is the one working in us, making us able to produce fruit, and then producing the fruit in us. But then He also gives us the positive command to abide in Christ, to obey the commands of God, to obey by loving our brothers. So both things are true at the exact same time. God is working in you to do it, and He commands you to do it. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The result of obedience to and love for God is joy. The Christian who is dour and depressed because they're, they're walking the path of Christ is a contradiction in terms. Faithful obedience to the Word of God, faithful obedience to these commands to abide in Christ results in joy. It results in joy. We see unhappy Christians walking around. Our question ought to be, where's the disconnect, brother? Where's the disconnect? Are you being obedient in your, in your walk with Christ? Well, yeah. Then why are you downcast? Why are you depressed about it? It doesn't make any sense. 
Christ said, if you obey, you should have joy. Because look at this, and this is, this is, this is a beautiful example, okay? Christ gave us the example to follow in obedience and love. And this is what Hebrews, if you pull it up, Hebrews 12, um, verses 1 and 2. Just let me look at what this says here. This is, this is amazing. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you, do you see the argument that he started... I don't want to get too sidetracked here in Hebrews because it's, I mean, it's glorious, right? And I use that word all the time, but it, it really is glorious. But look, look, his argument here, his argument here is you struggle in running the race. You struggle in running the race. But let us lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Who, listen, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to talk about something that seems like a contradiction in terms, right? It says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross is where he was separated from God the Father because of our sins. But this is the example that we follow. Because Christ was obedient to the commands of the Father to give his life on behalf of the sheep for the joy set before him. We look at this and we and we look at some of these passages. We look at we look at John 17 that we're going to study next week, right? We look at these things and we see where there's th- this very real humanity in Christ where he is he is he is struggling. Right? He's going to be obedient, but he is struggling. And it says for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Christ went willingly to the cross and it resulted in joy because obedience results in joy. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Okay, so now, now we're going to see what, what is this fruit that I keep talking about. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and let's... This isn't going to surprise you. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna think to yourself, man, he built this up and then... Poof. Matthew chapter 22, verse 36. Teacher, and these are Jews talking to Jesus. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. What does it mean for a Christian to bear fruit? It means you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. What we need to understand when we look back and we read in Leviticus, when we read in Deuteronomy, all of the commands of God, what we need to realize is not that God is prescribing these arbitrary rules where he just says, oh, I like this and I don't like this, so don't do that, but yes, do this. It's not that. It's not that. It's that his law is a communication of his own character. It is a communication of who he is. Okay? And what does Corinthians tell us? God is love. He is other things as well, okay? But God is love. And on what do all the commands in Scripture hinge on? Love God, love neighbor. To bear fruit as a Christian, to abide in Christ as a Christian, to be a branch that is in the vine and will not be cut off and thrown into the fire, means that as a style of life, you love God and you love people. And you can see this played out in the law. Okay, so one of, one of the obscure laws I like to reference um, when I'm explaining this to people is there's a law in Leviticus that, that tells the Jews, it tells Israel they, they can't glean the corners of their fields when they're reaping their harvest. Okay? And you think, that's weird. That's, that's strange. And then it says, it says also, it says, you can't pick up the fruit that falls on the ground. You can't glean the corners of your field. In other words, you can't harvest the corners of your field, and you can't pick up the fruit that falls on the ground when you are harvesting. Why? Why is this a law for Israel? Because it provides for the poor. It provides for the sojourner who comes into the land and is hungry. They can go into the field, and this is also prescribed in the same law, okay? They can go into the field, and they can eat their fill. They can take what they need to satiate their hunger because God has provided love for them. Now, there's a law against those same people going in and gathering baskets full of fruit, right? Because then you're actually stealing. You're not, you're not providing for a need. You're actually taking the profit from someone. And so what we see here is that God is meticulous in teaching us how to love people. He is meticulous in showing us what love really is. Let me put it another way. The fact that you don't murder me dead this morning, is that loving? I think so. I really do think so. I thank you for loving me enough not to shoot me dead. You see what I'm saying? 
there's, there's, there's an intimate connection, even, even with the smallest of these laws, with how we love God and how we love our neighbor. <clears throat> so all of the law and all of God's commands hang on the commands to love God and love our neighbor. Let's look at verse 13. Ooh, I'm in the wrong place. <clears throat> Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than uh, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Love for God and love for neighbor results in self-sacrifice. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this. But what love for neighbor and love for God results in is you being willing to give up of yourself for others. Like I said, so one way we can look at this, right? Jesus had sleepless nights. Because in the daytime, he would be, he would be faced with this throng of people who were coming to be healed of various diseases and sicknesses and ailments and, and all these kind of things. And then, because he loved them, because he had compassion on them, he wouldn't turn them away. There'd be hundreds, if not thousands of people coming to him and, and saying, Lord, can you heal me? And he would heal. And he would do this loving work of restoring them bodily. And then many times the Scripture describes, especially after those kinds of days, that he would go off by himself to the mountain and pray. Jesus is the example for us of what it means to love God and love neighbor and to sacrifice yourself for those things. I believe there were moments when Jesus got frustrated. But I believe that in those moments, he was still obedient to the command of God to love his neighbor. I mean, we see it even with the disciples, right? We see it in, and I refer to chapters 13 and 14 here in John, where the disciples are like misunderstanding. He's going, are you... You've been with me so long and you still don't see it? You still don't get it? If you don't believe what I'm teaching you, believe the miracles. And then he'll have a long conversation about what it means to love. Jesus is, is, is our best example. Verse 15. <clears throat> no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. The transition from slave to friend is significant because it shows the intimacy offered to those who are truly born again. A slave, Jesus says, doesn't know his master's business. But a friend does. And what does he say? I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my Father I've made known to you. God communicates, to, God communicates to us in making us born again. He shows us how we ought to live and then He embraces us as friends, as sons even, 
Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. The plan of God to save a particular people for himself is absolute. And those who come to Christ by faith, who have been born again of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, will bear fruit. They will bear fruit. We spent all these weeks talking about God's sovereignty in the act of salvation, right? God's role in this. And we can't leave out the fact that He has prepared good works for us to do. Pull up Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse 10 here. I'm just going to read it off the screen. For we are, and we, we I just want to remind you, we've been in Ephesians 2, uh, you know, that, that, that very first the verses 1 through 10 for the past couple of weeks now. It says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So not only has all of the power and decree and plan of God converged to save a people, but it has included the good works that you're going to do as a born-again believer. Last verse. This I command you, that you love one another. Turn with me again to 1 John. We're going to look a little more, a couple more verses. 1 John, this time chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, Right? So here's the love of God toward us. That God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. What does it mean that God loved you? It means that God sent His Son to die for you so that you would live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, Again, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then, if you look just a few verses down, chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love, listen to this, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, 
and observe His commandments. Do you see the intimate relationship here between love and obedience to the commands of God? Loving one another means that you obey God. Obeying God means that you love your brother. For this is the love of God. I'm, it can't get any more plain here. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And as if to just slap it one step further, and His commandments are not what? Are not burdensome. For the Christian, it is not a, it is not a burden to obey God. Again, abiding in Christ, bearing fruit of our faith and salvation, means that in obedience to God, we love God and we love our neighbor. And this, by nature, results in joy for the believer. Now, I'll, I'll grant this. I'll grant this. There are temptations that spring up in the life of people, even in the life of Christians, that can just straight up eat our lunch sometimes. Things that we struggle to fight against, that we struggle to deal with. And because we struggle... Sometimes this results in our uh, in us being downcast, in us being depressed, or in us being um, seeing ourselves as unworthy. And like all of these things are true, right? Like look at the vileness of your sin, and then compare it to what God calls you to. And sometimes that can make you feel helpless or hopeless. But it's true that God won't simply leave you there. If you look at Romans chapter 7, we don't have to turn there. If you look at Romans chapter 7, Paul has this discourse about sin inside of him. Right? He says, he says, the things that I want to do, those things I don't do. And then the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And then, as if to fully express the epitome of what this feels like for the believer sometimes. He says, oh, who will save me from this body of death? Because I'm doing the things that I hate, and I'm not doing the things that I ought to do that God loves. Who will save me from this body of death? And it says, thanks be to God in Christ. For he has taken away our sins. And so if you're a believer, God says you must bear fruit. If you're a believer, God says you must obey his commands. This whole, this whole thing of obedience being just, we ain't got to worry about that. Carnal Christian, right? No. It's not, the, it's not the testimony of Scripture. God says in His Word 
that if you love him, you'll obey him. And what does obedience mean? What does keeping the commandments of God mean? It means you love him and you love your neighbor. This plays out in, in ways that I can't list in a decent time frame this morning. But the Holy Spirit testifies to us what these things mean. What it means to love your neighbor. What it means to love God. And let me just say this. If you think yourself a Christian, if you think yourself a believer, a follower of God, and you're not concerned with the commands of God, you're not a believer. You're not in Christ. Beloved church, believers, Christ has died on our behalf, has set us free from the law that condemns us to death before God so that we can have life. And he bids us obey him. So, beloved, Love God by obeying Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, come before you again, Father. I thank you for your word. I thank you, O Lord, that you have loved us in such a way. I thank you, O God, that you sent your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to turn away your wrath from those who would come near by faith. God, I pray that you would help us to see our own sin in light of this glorious work of salvation. And know, Lord, help us to know that if it costs Christ His blood and His life, Oh, Lord, that it's going to cost us some sweat. Help us to see, oh, Lord, and be convinced that the author and perfecter of our salvation and faith is perfectly obedient. And he has called us to obedience without fear because his blood covers over us. Lord, move your people to greater faithfulness. Move us, God, to greater obedience to your word. Help us, Lord, to live consistently with what you have called us to. Help us, Lord, to see our sin and to repent. Father, all glory is yours. May your name be praised. May Christ be exalted in our midst, Father. May you Help us to be a light of Christ to those that are around us, Father, those in our families, those in our workplaces, God, those we run into just going about our daily tasks, Father. Help us to be the light of Christ, to be concerned with the things of God, and to love Christ by obeying Him. Father, all glory is yours. Amen.